I'm Mandy B. Anderson, and you're listening to the She Who Overcomes podcast, the weekly show that helps you spark hope and creativity for your life and business. In case we've never met before, I'm the chief creative officer and a leadership coach at a company called Rayma Team. I love coffee dates and books, stiletto shoes, running, kayaking, and I just happen to be living with a disease called cystic fibrosis. I'm sharing my story as well as the stories of people from around the world to help you rise up with hope-filled action. Grab your coffee and let's hang out. Hey, Overcomers, welcome to another episode of the She Who Overcomes podcast. And today, we actually get to hear from a he who overcomes. My guest is Bobby Foster. He is a content creator, a rapper, an author, and a life coach. He hopes to inspire through his actions, showing people can get through their challenges and follow their dreams. And I first heard about Bobby a couple years ago, whether it was on Facebook or through the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, I really don't remember. But I have been following him and kind of um, creeping on him for quite some time. So (laughs) Bobby, I want to officially welcome you to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, You know, I I love sharing my story. You know, like I said, you know, I I really hope to inspire people with what I do. Um, And so that's that's why I'm here today. So thank you for inviting me out. You're welcome. And I was watching your YouTube channel and well, actually your Instagram TV. I'm not a big YouTube person. I usually end up going there and like traveling down some Taylor Swift bunny hole and then forget why I'm there in the first place. So, um, but I was watching your, your videos on Instagram and can you talk us through some of the content that you're creating right now? Because it's really, it's really inspiring and fascinating. I love what you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, what I do on YouTube is I'm a music, um, a music reactor. So, you know, I react to all the new songs that come out or, you know, old songs too. Um, and I feel like the thing I do different than other people is I actually started it, um, because I wanted to be able to talk about life lessons in music actually, um, because I'm a life coach and I always had a hard time kind of coming up with social media content. Um, but I love music. And so I got the idea of like, okay, I'm going to listen to this music. If there's like life lessons involved, I'll take a minute, talk about it, stuff like that. And then one thing led to another and it kind of like blew up for me. I mean, it went way better than I was expecting. <laughs> um, and so that that's what got me into it. And, you know, I just I really love music and I feel like music really does teach life lessons. And so that's why I started. That's why I named the channel Foster the Knowledge, because I wanted to give people and it's a play on my name, Bobby yeah. Foster. So I call it Foster the Knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. I love the creativity of it because you're right when it's. When it's personal growth content and life coaching content, it can be really challenging to come up with a cool way that that gets people's attention. 
Um, and so I was going to tell you, I'm like, if he doesn't talk about being a life coach, I'm totally bringing it up because yeah. <laughs> um, you, we had been texting or sending um, direct messages on Instagram and you said you're not, you're not actively working as a life coach right now that you're, you're doing more of the content creation. And when I was watching some of your videos, the one that I really um, connected with was the one that you did on Beyonce's song, Me, Myself and I. And uh, yes. you dove into a little like personal growth rant about the line, love is so blind, it feels right, right when it's wrong. And I'm like, mm-hmm. dude, he is totally sharing like life coaching information through these really cool videos. So I want to kind of dive into that, uh, that line and that teaching a little bit that you, that you got really passionate about, because I think a lot of people really need to understand the difference between love and passion and lust. So can you share a little bit about that? And then then we'll share more about your story and, and see where the conversation goes from there. Yeah, for sure. So um, when it comes to that line in the video, I can't specifically remember what I said, but I know the basic idea of like what you're saying, love versus passion versus lust, all of that. Um, I think it's something that I bring up in videos a lot <laughs> because it seems to be kind of, you know, in mainstream music, this idea of, you know, like codependency and everything like that is very, very present in a lot of music. Um, And so I think when it comes to love, I sum it up very, very simply when it comes to like a, a romantic relationship. I think you should be in the space of wanting to be with somebody versus needing to be with them. Um, because when you want to be with someone and you're showing up every day out of your own willingness and not feeling like you have to be with somebody, mm-hmm. that's when all the emotions and all the thoughts and all that come from a place of, you know, not being so attached that things can go so absolutely wrong internally in yourself. And so that's that's kind of what I always preach in my videos. Because um, just for me personally, even in my own personal experience, when I started showing up for my relationships, whether it was romantic or a friendship or family, and it was coming from a place of, oh, I want to be here right now, instead of like feeling obligated to be here. I feel like all my relationships got way more um, connected. Mm -hmm. That's a powerful point of view. And one of the things you had said in this video is that most people feel true and unconditional love, not with a partner, but with their friends. And that really hit home with me because the the love that you have with a friend is different than with a partner, but it can sometimes be just as deep or even deeper on a friendship side sometimes. And yes. I think people don't realize that. Yeah, definitely. Um, that was something that I actually learned from. I, I went to a life coach myself for a while, mm-hmm. which is what got me into life coaching. Um, and that's one thing I learned through that. And I actually met my wife. Like, so my, my life coach would have group sessions and that's actually where I met my wife. <laughs> oh, um, that's awesome. Yeah. You met somebody <laughs> like-minded who also understands the coaching industry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, uh, I'm blanking right now. <laughs> um, oh, the friendship. Yes. So taking, I feel like taking that and applying it to a romantic relationship is important. And, you know, I think people innately know that because, you know, a lot of people always say, you know, relationships, romantic ones work out better when you're friends first. That's for a reason, because you're loving them unconditionally to begin with. 
And then, you know, you add in the romance factor and, you know, that complicates things. But you have a solid foundation of unconditional love before you even start because you love them as a friend first. So there's definitely, you know, merit to that, you know, perspective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. My husband and I have been married for, gosh, I think we just celebrated 18 years. I got married really young. So, um, and I often tell people like, go for the person that you would consider a best friend because in marriage, there's going to be seasons where you don't feel that passion or that lust. But if you have the friendship there, then you have something stable to, to build upon through the hard times. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the, the, um, the biggest reasons why my husband and I have been successful in our marriage and in overcoming the hard seasons is because we have that friendship and that commitment to be there for one another, even though we might not always feel like it. Yeah. No, I I feel like, you know, I got married in January, so I don't have that much experience, but even just like going through Corona together, Mm -hmm. you know, not being able to leave the house (laughs) with a four-year-old, you know, I feel like our friendship, you know, kind of even grew through that, you know, just hanging out and watching movies or like Mm -hmm. just enjoying people's time, like enjoying our time together. Um, I feel like, yeah, like you're saying, like, it's such a strong, you know, foundational thing to have mm-hmm. that I, I definitely feel like it'll sustain our relationship as, as time goes on. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So before I forget, the question I always like to ask every single person on this show is mm-hmm. if you were a shoe, what would you be? And what story does that tell about you? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> when you sent me this question, I was like, huh? <laughs> um, so the shoe I was, so, so I'm not a big shoe person. So I just went with the first thing that popped up into my head was like, I have this favorite basketball shoe I used to wear when I was a kid. It was our, our team shoe. And so I think what it says about me is just that I'm a, I'm a sentimental person about my childhood. Um, because like every time I think of my childhood, I pretty much have good memories of it. Um, you know, I had, I had a pretty amazing childhood. And so it it just brings me back to also just, you know, loving basketball. Um, I love basketball a lot. (laughs) That was, that was my (laughs) first passion. So yeah, I feel like that's, that's what it says about me. (laughs) I love that being sentimental about your childhood. That's, I have not heard that one yet. And I love that point of view. And most people, um, get a little bit like, huh, what is the point of this question on a podcast? <laughs> but really it's it's a great um it's a great way to build connection, especially if you're in a group of people, you know, like all those icebreaker type things that people do that yeah. I've always hated and then I come up with this one and make them do it. So it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um it's also fascinating because if you study personalities, um have you done any studying with personalities at all, Bobby? Um, a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. When yeah. you start asking this question and really listening to the answers, uh, you can see a person's personality and and like what their their answer is on specific tests um, through their the way that they answer it, and it's really fascinating. It's yeah. yeah. As a life coach, if you start experimenting with something like this um, when you are in a virtual group or in a group of people again. When it's when the world goes back to that, um, I think yeah. you'd be fascinated at it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I do know that as a life coach, you know, just paying attention to how people answer 
you know, pretty like neutral questions, you know, like what, yeah. what words they use, how they, you know, structure their sentences, all that kind of stuff kind of gives you insight into where they're coming from. So, yeah, but I like really when I, when I was thinking about that, it, it really did just bring me back to my childhood. And, and I know a lot of people I like don't look that fondly on their childhood, <laughs> but, you know, I, I had a, a really good upbringing, actually. Um, and so I, I do, I, I look, I look back on it and I get a, a little, uh, it's like bittersweet, you know, cause I love it, yep. but I'm like sad it's gone. Um, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a refreshing point of view to hear because, um, you and I both have cystic fibrosis and mm-hmm. I have met many people with CF that, um, maybe wouldn't have that point of view that their childhood was great because of CF. So mm-hmm. when I meet somebody who can say I had a good childhood and I have CF, I, to me, that brings hope and that brings inspiration. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that, you know, when it came to, when it comes to my own uh, CF journey, uh, the, the dark times, if you will, were, were, uh, were my high school days. Um, that, that's when everything started getting really rough for me. Um, and so, yeah, talking about my teenage years, now that's when things get a little dark. (laughs) You know, those teenage years are, are fascinating for all of us. I'm, you know, and were you, were you in the hospital a lot as a teenager or did you, did you have those experiences frequently or every few years? What was it like? Comparing, comparing to my own life. Um, I was in the hospital a lot during my teenage years, maybe not necessarily compared to like CF on average, mm-hmm. but I was like never hospitalized growing up, like in my youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically what kickstarted everything off was I got mono by sharing a Gatorade with somebody on my basketball oh. team. And then that just spiraled out of control. You know, I got yeah. just pneumonia, a whole bunch of kind of stuff. Um, and I was just, you know, in and out of the hospital for like three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, always on antibiotics, you know, and, and like, even like, I've never really had to do breathing treatments or anything like that, honestly. Um, uh, but then I had to like pretty much start all of that in high school. Okay. And then, you know, luckily for me, you know, I got back to a level of normal, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like my sophomore year of college. Um, but it was, it was rough. It, it was really rough in high school. Um, yeah, it was just a lot was going on in my life period, like even outside mm-hmm. of CF, like it was just a lot happening to me. So, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was some rough times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with like, okay, I hear you saying I didn't have to do treatments growing up. What was it like to suddenly have to start doing them then? So that's what I'm saying about that time. Like everything was so jarring you know, my parents were going through a divorce. Um, I had to stop playing basketball too, which didn't like, so basketball was my treatment, if you will, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I was, I was healthy enough to, you know, be very, very athletic at that time. Um, and to stop all of that too, uh, was also a stress like on my lungs and just my body in general. Um, because I had like a shoulder injury, uh, and had to get surgery on that. And then that pretty much just like ruined my basketball career in high school. Um, so just kind of all of that and then adding the regiment of, you know, breathing treatments, antibiotics, like in and out of the hospital, it was really, um, it was, it was very, very, very jarring, you know, very depressing. Um, and I just feel like 
you know, at the same time, like I'm saying, like everything outside of my health, you know, it was, it was just a lot. Um, and so, you know, I even tried therapy and all that at the time. Um, and I just had to have a lot of support to make it through that time. That, that was a really, really hard time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have been a contributor um, to to articles on the CF Foundation blog for quite some yes. time, right? You've written several several of them. Yeah, I think it's been probably a few years now. I'll probably do like one or two a year, something okay. around that. Something around that. Yeah. I I am. Um, in the process of writing my first one, I finally filled out the form and I'm like, why Why do I wait so long to fill these things out? It's yeah. not hard. It's just a few minutes. But um, it's it's really awesome to see the articles that you've written. And you were telling me before we started recording that you just really like to share your story and bring hope to people. And even in your bio, you said you want to bring hope to people to help them get through their own challenges and follow their dreams. And I think mm-hmm. that is um, seems to be a similar uh, focus for a lot of CF patients that are out there sharing their story. Um, one of the stories that you recently wrote was very eye-opening for, for myself, and I know very many people that have read it. You, you wrote a story called Being Left Out as a Black Man with CF. Can you yes. share a little bit about what that experience has been like and and why um why it has been harder um because i think i think what people don't realize is i have always grown up hearing that cystic fibrosis is primarily a white person disease mm-hmm. but as i'm reading stories that's not necessarily true and it's coming down to more of um the the healthcare being equal to everybody, if that's yeah. the right way to say it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it is still primarily, you know, um, mostly with white people as far as CF goes. Um, I think I can't remember the statistic on how many black people have CF, but it's very, 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 very low. Um, and so I'm, I'm mixed. So my mom is white. My dad is black. Um, and so it's always been because I have that dichotomy, if you will, I can clearly see the difference between when I go to the hospital and my mom was with me and when my dad was with me, there was like a night and day difference, even in my adult years. Now, when I go to the hospital on my own, um, and you know, my wife is like a, a, a person of color as well. And so when I, when I go on my own, the, the last time I went, it, it was, it was very frustrating. Um, I felt like when I went there, they weren't listening to what I was saying. I was asking for like I've been in, in and out of the hospital so much. I pretty much know what I need when I when I get there. You know, a lot of, like a lot of yep. us CFers are like that. Like yep. we know exactly what's wrong. We know what we need. We're just so there I'm for like, the meds, literally. Yeah, so. yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm like, give me this, 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 and this. And it's kind of like, and you know, this is a CF thing in general. But sometimes they feel like you know you're you're seeking drugs. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like as a black man, that's also a huge stereotype as well. And then when my mom got there, oh, everyone's tone changed completely. <laughs> like it, it was she literally showed up, said some things, and like I was good to go. And so that was like the first time kind of in my adult experience, I experienced it uh, by myself. I, I, I think, you know, it's, um, I mean, there's so many statistics how, you know, black people get treated different in the healthcare system, especially black women, 
you know, like when it comes to pregnancy, you know, black women are at, at way higher risk of, of, you know, dying when it comes to being pregnant. Um, it, there's a statistics all over the place, but, you know, in my own experience, you know, it doesn't even necessarily have to do with, uh, you know, just healthcare. I feel like being a minority in a minority, you know, is, is hard. Um, especially, you know, when it came to, you know, when everything popped off with social justice issues with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I felt very, very isolated, uh, within the CF community, to be honest. Um, there was a lot of things I was seeing that, you know, just like if I'm being blunt, just prejudice and, you know, Mm -hmm. racist things, honestly. And so it, it was, um, it, it, that, that was a really difficult time to to get through as well uh, in my own personal life. And then, like I said, like just feeling isolated. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that come into play uh, when it comes to like being black and having a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at the same time, you know, something that I've been thinking about is how I benefit, honestly, from having a disease that a lot of white people have. Because when it comes to CF, there's a lot of money that gets put into it Mm -hmm. for research purposes. I think I benefit from that, you know, from like when things like Trikafta and everything come out. Uh, Being in that position where I'm close to whiteness has definitely helped me in my journey, if I'm being Mm -hmm. being realistic. Um, Because like I said, my mom can show up to the hospital and help Mm -hmm. me out. Like that's not something that, you know, all people of color have the ability you know, to be close to that whiteness, if you will, mm-hmm. to actually have that like like a semi white privilege thing almost. <laughs> like yeah. it's very it's very weird. Like there's a lot of dynamics when it mm-hmm. comes to that. Uh, but I've experienced it all, you know. So mm-hmm. that's kind of kind of some of my journey right there. So you you live in Florida, is that right? Yes. Okay. I I well, live I in North Dakota, which mm-hmm. um we are a pretty white state. And I think I think we even sometimes struggle with even admitting that we're white, um, mm-hmm. almost like we don't know if we can say that or, um, you know, what does that mean if we admit it? And I, because I've been in the life coaching industry and I am fascinated by other people's stories, I've really been wanting to learn more about other people's journeys because I feel like if we can if we can learn from their story and hear their story, we have an opportunity to have a different perspective. And yeah. I picked up the book, um, White Fragility, and I'm, I'm slowly working my way through it. It's, it's really heavy content. Yeah. But it's really fascinating because we are not taught about our own privilege. We're Ooh. not taught about um, the realities that people of color face. Um, and how systems have been set up to keep them in those systems. And I think it's I, I think it's so refreshing to hear your perspective of how, yes, you are in this in this circumstance, you're a, a minority within a minority, but you're also flipping the switch of, wait a minute, but there's also some some good things here too. And I think so many people, no matter what color they are, so many people can, can find hope again and move forward when they shift their perspective and start seeing the possibilities that are, that are in front of them because of their circumstances too. And I think that's, I think that's such a powerful 
point of view that you're sharing of how, yes, this is where I'm at, but I'm also seeing this benefit. Um, I, I often set, step back so that I can see both sides of the story. And there are mm-hmm. things I, I have friends who have a different point of view than I do on certain things, but I can see where they're coming from with their point of view. And, and I mm-hmm. often have that, that mindset of, okay, if I were in their shoes, how would I see it? And I, yeah. I think that's, that's what we need to do as a society is start getting to the point where we can ask ourselves, what would I do if I were in their shoes? Yeah, I mean, I think empathy is a big factor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, as far as what I was saying is like, I, I, I don't necessarily see a benefit when it comes to, like I was saying, my, you know, proximity to, to whiteness and how that, you know, has affected my life. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see it as a benefit. I, I'm, I'm aware of it. Okay. Um, and I think that, you know, I honestly have to actively resist it in some kind of ways because I feel like, systematically there's a lot of things where like I said like that's not something that like it's a privilege it's not something that everyone is allowed mm-hmm. um and it and it's det- like it's detrimental to me too <laughs> you know and yeah. so I, I think it's something that I'm becoming aware um of of different types of dynamics like even taking it out of race you know being a man and how I fit into the patriarchy and how I need to actively, like, if I'm not actively going against these things, then, you know, I'm hurting women in a sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's all different types of, you know, dynamics where there's a majority and a minority and how, you know, there's different power dynamics involved. And I think I'm just becoming more educated on all of that involved, whether that's, like I said, you know, men and women you know, being healthy versus, you know, being sick. Like there's a lot of different things involved. And I'm, I'm just really trying to get educated on where I stand, what powers I do hold and kind of actively going against the systems that are set up to hold down the minority group in whatever minority group that may be, you know, a part of, if you hear what I'm saying. Yeah, that's that's a um, much better way to explain it. And I think that's, what I was trying to put words to, and, and I'll be honest, these type of conversations, um, I know going in that I'm, I might say things a little, not necessarily wrong, but misinterpreted. And so, mm. but I think that idea of actively going against the systems and just becoming aware, getting more educated, um, that I think that is important. And I think that is a way to, like, when it comes to losing hope or building hope, um, there's a lot of hope out there, but just because we have hope for something different doesn't mean that we're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to easily come to us. Yeah. And, you know, something just came to my mind that I really wanted to say, because I think this is also vitally important if we want change. Um, when it comes to talking about these isms, if you will, or the, it's like, you know, like sexism, racism, all that kind of stuff. I think for people to witness how they're playing into those systems, stop um, identifying with it in the sense of like, I don't necessarily believe people are racist or sexist or anything like that. However, I do believe something you can do can feed into racism and sexism. Mm. Like it's more of a behavior. It's not an attribute to yourself. And so I think it really stops people you know, from saying like, oh, no, I'm not sexist. You know, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. And because th- then you feel like personally attacked. 
So when I stopped, you know, with my own personal experience, it had to do, you know, with, with, uh, like I said, like when I was educating myself on like being a man, you know, as soon as I started saying like, oh, I can see how this action, you know, I'm playing into sexism. I don't think that makes me a sexist. And then I can like change my behavior. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like that's how change actually happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just like my advice for people to be able to distance yourself enough from the behavior so you can objectively look at it and change it and stop mm-hmm. taking it so personally. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think um, if if all people hear from this episode is what yeah. <laughs> you just said, that's a lot to chew on and a lot to activate to move forward in in making those changes because it is that I I'm with you Bobby I don't think that the majority of people are like choosing like I'm going to choose to be racist or sexist it really is like we're not aware of what yeah. our actions or our words play into until we start actively choosing to become aware and start going down that growth adventure of, mm-hmm. okay, what is it that I do that feeds into the things I say I don't want to be? Because so yeah. many people don't pay attention to that. They just keep on going, keep on having the same mindset, but wondering why they're not having better relationships or different results in their life. And it really comes down to that with every single issue. It comes down to that of yeah. how am I playing into the things I don't want? A hundred percent. And I mean, like, to your point, like, even, you know, even if you are educated on things, like sometimes there's just things that are so subtle that you don't Mm -hmm. realize, you know, that that's what I realized, like when the whole Me Too movement was happening, just like the like there were were so many little things Mm -hmm. that like as a man, I don't think about. You know, Mm -hmm. but then like when women started talking about all these things, I'm like, oh, wow. And like, yeah, like that's hard to face. Like, oh, man, I was making people uncomfortable in this way or that way or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I said, if you can distance your behavior enough from your identity, you can change the behavior and Mm -hmm. then everything is good. And, you know, it definitely does start with the awareness and the education. I think, you know, there's so many things on social media and just the Internet in general where you can go get educated now. Mm-hmm. And you can get that awareness. You just have to be willing, you know, and as a coach, I'm sure you know that like willingness yep. is like the first step to everything. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and the difference between being willing to learn, but also being willing to activate because you can be you you can just binge on all of the things to learn. But until you start activating what you're learning in your life, it's not actually going to create anything new. Yeah, that's true too. And mm-hmm. it, and it really is a, uh, it's a hard journey of self-reflection. And mm-hmm. I think also, you know, something that, you know, I was actually, I was watching a, uh, a Netflix documentary that said something mind blowing too. Um, it was, um, who was it? Chelsea Handler. Um, and in the documentary, she said that she learned that it wasn't, uh, it, it, it shouldn't be up to black people to fix the problems white people have mm-hmm. that create racism. Mm-hmm. And then like I copied and pasted that to women and men. Like it's not a women's job mm-hmm. to, to fix, you know, issues men have that cause sexism. And so that really made me think also like, you know, 
minorities, you know, can can raise as much awareness as possible. Sure. But at the end of the day, whoever's doing the oppressing has to fix themselves. Like mm-hmm. that's literally what has to happen. Um, and so I feel like everyone like in this climate, like that's kind of the message I would want to get mm-hmm. out there is it really does start with you. Mm-hmm. Like it, it truly does. And it may not seem like it because it's a huge social issue. Mm-hmm. But it really does start at home, you know, and, and there's so many lessons that get taught generationally. Like this is a yeah. generational battle here. Like this is not going to change, mm-hmm. you know, in five, 10 years. This is what are you teaching your kids, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, you, you see even things like there was, um, I, I, I'm, I'm terrible with names, but, you know, the first black girl that, you know, went to, um, you know, a desegregated school, mm-hmm. she's only like 70 years old. <laughs> and so you know, the, like all of these teachings are definitely mm-hmm. still getting passed down. And so you have to look at yourself and be like, okay, well, what am I going to do different for the next generation? Because like, that's really how this is going to change. Like it's going to mm-hmm. take generations. Um, so it really does start at home, literally. It really does. And yeah. I think, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, racism and sexism, it's, it's interesting because when you think about like, what am I doing to play into either one of those? I had a moment back in, I think, right around May, probably right when um, everything was happening with George Floyd and I first heard about Breonna Taylor. Um, I was listening to a sermon with um, Pastor Stephen Furtick, and um, I think it was John Gray from Elevation Church, and they were talking about what happened with Breonna Taylor, and I hadn't heard about it yet. And when I heard the whole story, I I just had a moment where I had to I I had to just burst into tears about the lack of humanity that people have, but also it made me think like how am I playing into racism because I don't want to be, but I know because of the the area that I've grown up in I I maybe am playing into it and don't realize it. And as a woman, at the same time, I have to be aware of my surroundings because it's not always safe. And so I will be that type of person where um, if I'm walking down the street alone and I maybe see somebody coming at me because of the, the, um, the words I've heard my whole life of be careful, watch out, you know, make sure you're okay. Um, that's just the the kind of care I've grown up in in my family is, you know, Mm -hmm. be careful. Are you safe? Be careful. And um, it doesn't matter if it's a white man or a black man coming down the street or any other man of color. I will, like, if I'm alone, I do start to kind of be like, oh no, am I safe? Are they coming after me? And I don't like that that's there, but Mm -hmm. it's more because I'm a woman, not because of race. But I had a moment where I had to think like, okay, but they don't know that. So if, if they're a a person of color and they see me maybe getting a little tense, they might think it's because of the color of their skin. And, and that's how I'm playing into racism in that moment. And that was an eye-opening thing for me because first of all, it made me realize where did this fear come from? from like being afraid of other people when you're alone. We got to work on that, Mandy. But also it was an awareness that, okay, I need to work on that because I don't want to be playing into that. Um, even though I'm not in charge of, of another person's thoughts, I am in charge of my actions. And I want to make sure that I'm a person who is, is portraying um, love and possibilities instead of fear. Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's great when you can take your own, you know, personal experience and, you know, realize like, oh, like maybe this is how, you know, the fear I have walking down the street, you know, they have it too, you know, when it could mm-hmm. come to police or anything like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it's really hard when there's like unknown unknowns and you kind of have to take people's word for their experience. Mm-hmm. I think that's where a lot of people struggle because some people are like genuinely like, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. So you must be lying. Mm-hmm. And they don't actually like truly listen or, to, or, or believe, you know, a story about, you know, like, like you're saying, walking down the street or like when I'm walking down the street, not to like have my hood up or, you know, mm-hmm. all the little things, just like how women get taught all these little ways of safety, you know, as black men, you know, we get taught a lot about that too. Like uh, all mm-hmm. these little different, you know, things to avoid to make sure you're safe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those levels of empathy are strong uh, and definitely have the ability to, you know, see, you know, to have like a common understanding of just like that fear that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, like, the, like I'm saying, like, that's what I do in my own experience. Like, yeah, I don't know what it's like to walk down the street you know, and be afraid of like a man walking towards me. But I do know what it's like walking down the street and being afraid of, you know, something. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, I, yeah. I understand that. And so, you know, I, I'm very caught, like, you know, part like, like, there's just so many things I have learned about women's experience about like all the little things, mm-hmm. you know, you do or even big things. But um, to me, what was more surprising was all the little subtle things, you know, like always parking close to stores, you know, at nighttime yep. and just a whole bunch of kind of stuff. Um, And so, yeah, I think people in this climate just really have to be open to hearing other people's perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, honestly, it does make sense that it's been jarring for a lot of people because with the rise of social media and people actually being able to get their perspectives out, that's never been able to happen in history. It's always been through a different medium like the news or something like that. But to hear people's raw personal stories and have mm-hmm. them in front of your face is very jarring. <laughs> it's yeah. very jarring to to see how life could be so different mm-hmm. from the one you're experiencing. Like that's a new situation in humanity. We've really never ever experienced mm-hmm. that before. Um so we're we're still in the very beginning stages of the internet and and people having unfiltered, you know, like people seeing unfiltered things, you know, like seeing a video like George mm-hmm. Floyd. And seeing all of those things and actually witnessing them and hearing mm-hmm. about them, it's it's different. And so mm-hmm. I feel like it is going to be met with a huge emotional uh, charge because it, it's very jarring. It is. And it's, it, it's happening yeah. in a year that is already a traumatic year for a lot of people where there's PTSD and anxiety. And if you have any health challenges like cystic fibrosis or or anything else all of that is heightened. I mean, yes. I I have a counselor that I that I uh, meet with every month because I was in a spot where I needed a counselor more than a life coach or a or a business coach at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Although my counselor is a little bit uh, a little bit of both because we share our business experiences and and she gives me some some ideas to think about with that too. But yeah. I've I've had to ask her like in our last session about ways to help with PTSD and 
um, a PTSD episode that is kind of currently happening because 10 years ago in October, we lost our home to an apartment fire and we lost everything. And it had gotten better through the years, my, my anxiety and PTSD around the anniversary time. But now mm-hmm. I think because we have our, we are homeowners again and um, it's the 10 year anniversary and it's a pandemic happening. The anxiety is different. And, um, I'm noticing that from a lot of people. Like it seems like things they thought they had maybe overcome in the past are are somehow coming back and becoming like right in their face and the anxiety is starting all over again and they can't figure out why. Well, it's because of everything that's happening in the world right now and we're seeing it all on social media. We're seeing the the anxiety of the pandemic. We're seeing the social injustices right in our face, which is good. We need to be aware of these things. But like you said, it's the, the first time in history where we've been able to see everybody's perspective all at once. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as far as speaking to the anxiety, like my anxiety has been through the roof. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and like you said, like, you know, a lot of my friends in the same position, whether that's, you know, losing jobs or, mm-hmm. you know, health concerns or, you know, a, a whole bit, like you're saying, like, there's a lot, like when you have so much free time, because the pandemic has caused a right. lot of free time for a lot mm-hmm. of people, <laughs> yep. you know, all these issues that you may be putting to the side, you know, because you're, you're working all the time, you're trying to provide whatever it may be you know, they, you know, pop up in your face and you, mm-hmm. and you have to deal with them. Uh, and you have to, you know, yeah, like, like, you, like you just gotta, you gotta face it because it's in your face. You have nothing to do all day, you know, except watch Netflix. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> right. you know, it's, um, I think it's, it's one of those things where just like, and I feel like this is personal, you know, just like advice for people once again, I feel like it's one of those things where something I've learned uh, from my CF actually is that, you know, like the slogan for CF, I've always disagreed with the whole like fight it thing, like be a fighter, see a fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I realized like it wasn't till I actually accepted my CF that like, I was actually like good in my life. Like for so long, you know, I was fighting it. And then I realized like, okay, what am I fighting? I'm like fighting myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm like fight, fighting a part of myself. I'm, I'm hurting myself. And so I think integrating your issues and learning how to live with them and not against them is very, very, very important. And I feel like a lot of people should hear that during these times because a lot of people are facing a lot of issues, very, very real issues. Um, But I would say learn how to move with your issues instead of against them. And I feel like when you do that, you at least give yourself a chance to, you know, be hopeful, a chance to, you know, integrate them in, in your life and be able to utilize them in some, in some capacity. And I just want to give a quick example of that if people are kind of confused mm-hmm. on what I mean. Mm-hmm. So when I accepted my CF for what it was, um, that's actually like when my life turned around in a lot of different ways, I started to be able to work out more because before I accepted, I'd be like, why can't I run that long? Why can't I do this? Mm. Why can't I do that? But when I accepted it, I was like, you know what? Okay. If I can only run one minute today, that's what I'll do. And like, I didn't have a judgment against it. So Mm -hmm. it like changed my health for the better in that way. Um, I was like, you know what? I may feel kind of uncomfortable being black with CF, but whatever, like, this is my story. I'm going to go share it. And like, that's Mm -hmm. when I started getting really involved in CF community, um, which even leads to a talk like this. (laughs) And then you know, even, you know, just like, 
I, I've always felt kind of like a survivor's guilt with CF because mm-hmm. I've been practically healthy my whole life. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I wasn't a good representation of what CF was. Um, and so oh, I never I talked yeah. to anybody about it. Yeah. Yeah. I never yep. talked to anybody about it or I didn't want to represent the disease, even though I really did want to represent it. I did mm-hmm. want to speak for it. And then, you know, one thing happened to it. I was like, you know what? It's my story though. So it is a mm-hmm. CF story. So yeah. I went and shared it. And then, you know, I actually got told by a lot of people, you know what? Like you are in the position to go talk about it because you mm-hmm. are healthy enough to like show up and go do talks and you are healthy enough to do this and do that. I was like, you know what? You're right. Like, I'm going to use that Mm -hmm. to my advantage. And so, you know, none of that would have happened if I wouldn't have, you know, stopped fighting it. Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that I'm saying, you know, whether it is, you know, whatever insecurity you may be having or whatever issue you may be having, if you can learn to move with it, I feel like things start moving. You get some type of momentum. Mm -hmm. I can't guarantee you to work out in a good way or a bad way. But at least you'll be moving. You won't be like plagued by this paralysis of judgment in in all this other kind of stuff you're feeling about your your issue or your insecurity. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my advice on that. I am just like yes, yes, yes to all of that <laughs> because I felt the same way. I've been pretty healthy the majority of my life with CF, and the only years that I wasn't, it was because I spent two years not doing my treatments because I was really seeking out a a miraculous healing of CF and um, in a sense, kind of denying the fact that I had it. And that was my version of rebellion with CF. I think growing up, I always heard people say, Oh, when you get to college, like a lot of college students rebel and they don't do their treatments. And that wasn't me. I never did that until I was 28 and I decided I I have been to every healing service for this and I've never put my faith into action. So I um, ignited what I call a dangerous hope and I took action and I flushed my medication down the toilet and some weird things happened during that time. But at the end Ooh. of it, I almost died. I went from oh, wow. like 80 some percent lung function, which I had always been around 90, 98, but I went through a season where it just kind of started getting lower and I was getting older. And um, by the end of it, I was 22% lung function for 22 days in the hospital fighting for my life. And the miracle is that I got my life back without having to have a lung transplant. So, um, and this was before medication like Trikafta was, was even created because this would have been back in 2012 when I was in the hospital and almost died. So, um, but I, I, before that, I always felt like, oh, I'm so healthy. And I didn't know a lot of other healthy CF patients back then because the internet wasn't what it, what it is now. And I, I hear what you're saying, like that survivor's guilt, like I'm not as sick as everybody else. And maybe I don't have the right to speak up as often. And, um, I never wanted CF to be the main thing that I talked about. So I I almost didn't want it to become like my platform necessarily. And when I started embracing it as my platform about a year, two years ago, that's when things started to change for me as well, where I started making connections with people and being brave enough to let that be the story that first connects with people so that they can hear the other things I have to share. Yeah. You know, that's, we share a lot of similarities there. Um, kind of like when I was talking about in high school, uh, you know, like I, I didn't stop my meds or anything, but as far as like the percentages, mm-hmm. I was always like around a hundred percent 
and I dropped into the twenties. Um, and you know, I, I didn't need a lung transplant either. Um, but I needed a lot of bronchoscopies, a lot. (laughs) I have Um, never had one of those in there. I'm not going to lie. It's my biggest fear. I had a lot. Um, I don't even know how many I had in like a three year period. It was a lot. Um, even in like my sinuses have always been the worst. So I had to get Mm -hmm. like a whole bunch of like sinus clearing, you know, surgeries too. Um, but (laughs) yeah, so I, I, that, that was a lot. Um, and then, you know, as far as what you were saying with, you know, the CF kind of being the connecting point, um, you know, with people and then talk about some other things, you know, I was trying to also not have it be like my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I would go speak at schools and it was more so for my poetry and everything like that. My poetry so happens to have stuff about CF in it. And so, you know, <laughs> I would do my poems, I would do my talk and then, you know, we would run surveys afterwards and everyone was like, you know, the thing they liked most was me talking about my CF. And I was like, you know, I can't run away from this. Yeah, <laughs> Like it just keeps, it just keeps happening. Um, and so, you know, I don't even try necessarily to have CF be my focal point, if you will. But if I'm talking about my life, I can't leave out my CF, like it affects my every day. And so it, it just seems to be the point of my life that people get a lot of inspiration and hope mm-hmm. from. And so, you know, I just talk about me, like even in here, you know, we're talking about CF, we're talking about race, we're talking about all different kinds of stuff, but you know, that's my life. And so it gets brought up and, you know, I just, you know, I'm not afraid to, you know, talk about it, be vulnerable about it. Um, and it just leads me places, which is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, yeah. oh, I feel like we could talk for hours. So maybe yeah. <laughs> in the future, I'll have to have you on another episode and we can talk about whatever other topics come up. But, um, to end today, Bobby, what is something that you would want to, um, leave somebody with, um, for some encouragement if they have lost hope? Mm. So I think I'm going to circle back to what I was saying about kind of embracing your issues um, and, and, you know, specifically tie that into hope saying like lately, you know, because of the pandemic, because of these racial tensions, because of, you know, my health hasn't even been that great lately. Um, you know, with TriCaf, I've been having crazy symptoms with it, but um I think on a daily, like I'm being honest, like on a daily basis, I feel like I do lose hope, like on a very daily basis, Um, you know, just trying to adjust to all these things that are happening. But something that I have realized is like, if you keep pushing, the light will show up again. Like it will, I can guarantee it. It's happened to me so many different times. And I feel like in my life at the moment, I've learned to embrace hopelessness as in something of not trying to fix it. Uh, hopelessness is something that happens to everybody. It's normal. Um, and you don't need to judge yourself for it. Uh, just understand that it's a season and the seasons change. And, you know, if you wake up every day and, you know, you try your best and maybe even that day you feel like your best isn't good enough, you're putting a foot forward. And that's all we can ever do. You know, miraculous things don't need to happen to you every day. You know, try to find the happiness in the small things, especially in these times when, you know, the small things are what's really available to us. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I just want to say that, like, the judgment is like what kills you internally. 
It, it's the judgment of, oh, I shouldn't f- be feeling hopeless. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be feeling anxious. As soon as you can stop judging those things and realize that's where you're at with your life, you can then do something about it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'll leave people with. That is powerful. Bobby, where can people connect with you online? Yeah. So my social media accounts are underscore Bobby Foster, and that's on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my YouTube channel is I am Bobby Foster. Um, and then my website is bobbyfosterspeaks.com. Awesome. And I will link yeah. all of those uh, spots on the show notes so that people can get that right there as well. Um, Bobby, thank you so much for being on my show today. I I found it inspiring. I hope that you found the conversation inspiring as well. And I know that the listeners definitely glean will glean a lot of um, insight and wisdom and encouragement from this episode. Yes, thank you for having me out once again. It was it was a, an amazing talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, this this is the first time I've done something like this during quarantine, so I had a lot to talk about. <laughs> like you said, I could have kept we could have <laughs> kept going for some hours. <laughs> we'll but, have um, you on again sometime. <laughs> yeah, I would I would enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, we awesome. could talk forever about stuff. <laughs> Thank you so much. And hey, Overcomers, I am actually going to be taking a break for one week. So we will be back on, oh, what will the date of this be? Pro- like whatever the first full thurs- full week Thursday in October is. We'll be back with a brand new episode and an exciting announcement of something that's coming up um, for the month of like the middle of October to the middle of November. So stay tuned, catch up on past episodes, and I'll be back with you in another two weeks. Hey guys, thanks again for listening. I'd love to hear the takeaways that you got on today's episode. So let's hang out on social media. My favorite place to be is on Instagram and you can find me at she who overcomes podcast. And I'd be so grateful if you left a review before you go as well. You just might hear your name and your takeaway at the beginning of an upcoming episode. Oh yeah, and if you're ready to work through your own inner conflict and spark hope again, my new ebook and coaching video called How I Wish It Would Have Gone is available for only $9.97 at raymateam.com. You can get it today. That's R-A-Y-M-A-T-E-A-M dot C-O-M. Raymateam.com. All right. My coffee is cold, so I gotta go. See you next week. <laughs>